Pay it forward? Nah. Pay it backward. By Matt Ruby. That's me. We always talk about paying it forward, but it's equally remarkable when people pay it backward by elevating fading heroes. Rick Rubin did it with Johnny Cash. Francois Truffaut did it with Alfred Hitchcock. Bill Simmons did it with Jackie McMullen. Brandy Carlisle did it with Joni Mitchell. And Quentin Tarantino did it with John Travolta. In each of these cases, a younger, zeitgeisty creator decided to take time to focus on someone else that they'd long respected and elevate them in the public consciousness. These older, been-there, done-that artists aren't necessarily what the industry, focus groups, or the algorithm wants. But sometimes people don't know what they want until you show it to them, or simply remind them it's there. I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Johnny Cash was a badass, and Rick Rubin knew it. Rubin attended Bob Dylan's 30th anniversary concert at Madison Square Garden back in the 90s, where Cash was one of the many performers on the bill. Rubin saw Cash still had greatness in him, even though he'd been dropped by his label, was doing dinner theater shows, and was considering retirement. So Rubin pitched him on a collaboration, and the resulting records are some of the best of Cash's career. Rubin knew the key was to keep it simple and suggested Johnny just sit down in front of a mic with his guitar and start singing. And Cash was intrigued by that. And in Rubin, he saw a man who still believed in him. So Cash played Rubin some of his favorite songs, and then Rick Rubin brought him dozens of other songs from younger artists that fit Johnny's man in black persona. In fact, Cash's son, John Carter Cash, said his dad, quote, felt creativity and invigorated again, even though he was being consumed by frailty, end quote. If you haven't heard these albums, get on it. They're downright holy. I wear this crown of thorns. Speaking of holy, at last year's Newport Folk Festival, Brandy Carlisle helped guide Joni Mitchell, who was singing in public for the first time since her 2015 brain aneurysm. Her performance was occasionally off-key, yet totally on point, and left the audience feeling over the moon. During the concert, Carlisle seemed equal parts collaborator, MC, Sherpa, healthcare provider, and adoring fan. Before Mitchell picked up her guitar, Carlisle said, quote, this is a trust fall, and she picked the right people to do this with. Watching Carlisle bring Mitchell, the musicians, and the crowd together like that felt like a true gift. Something's lost, but something's gained in living every day, sang Mitchell near the end. And Carlisle chimed in with, tell him, Joni, and raised her hand to the sky. The crowd cheered, the chorus joined in, Carlisle erupted in tears of joy, and Mitchell laughed a cathartic laugh. I got choked up watching. Maybe that's because watching Carlisle sitting beside Joni like that reminded me of the healthcare workers who sat by my mother for years when she was ill. The dignity and respect with which people treat the aged, it reveals so much about their character. Well, something's lost, but something's gained. Just tell him, Joni. In living every day. A MacGuffin is a thing that the spies are after. It would be the plans of an airplane engine and the plans uh, of an atom bomb, anything you like. 
1962, French director Francois Truffaut convinced Alfred Hitchcock, his filmmaking idol, to sit down for eight days and discuss Hitchcock's directorial approach. Truffaut was 30 at the time, a former film critic who had directed just three movies of his own. Hitchcock was 63 years old and had made over 50 films. The result is Hitchcock by Francois Truffaut, one of the most famous film books ever, and there's a great HBO documentary about it too. The book has been an inspiration to filmmakers ever since, including Wes Anderson, who once said he wore his copy out. It offered cinematic insights and helped establish Hitchcock's reputation as an auteur after years of being viewed by many critics as something of a light entertainer, or even a hack. Imagine if Truffaut never engaged Hitchcock like this. Think about the treasure trove of filmmaking details that would have gone to the grave with Hitch. It shows how one person expressing admiration can truly impact the wider world, and also how people in the same industry can have conversations that elude other interviewers. By the start of the 1983-84 season, Bird and Magic had been in the league for four years and had established themselves as two of the most compelling players in the game. Bill Simmons has interviewed legendary hoops reporter Jackie McMullen many times over the years on his podcast and is clearly an admirer of her work. So when McMullen decided to retire from the grind of NBA reporting, Simmons coaxed her into helming a podcast called Icons Club for his Ringer Podcast Network. It's the perfect vehicle for a reporter of a certain age. She got to do most of the interviews remotely, and it enabled her to cash in many of the chips she'd earned after decades of tough yet fair reporting on basketball. I mean, just imagine what it was like to be a female NBA beat reporter in the 80s. She must have paid some dues. The resulting pod is pure hoops gold. As a basketball fan, I loved it. And I admire Simmons for seeing the opportunity, selling Jackie Mack on it, and turning it all into reality. Basketball fans will be listening to it decades from now. I do believe Marcellus, my husband, your boss, told you to take me out and do whatever I wanted. Now I want to dance. I want to win. I want that trophy. So dance good. All right. Before Pulp Fiction, John Travolta's career was in the tank. The previous two projects he'd worked on were Look Who's Talking Now, the third movie of that Talking Baby franchise, and the TV movie Boris and Natasha. You know, as in Rocky and Bullwinkle. Then, Quentin Tarantino came along. He told Travolta he was disappointed with what the Saturday Night Fever star had done with his career, and it was time to fix it. It wasn't an easy path either. Tarantino had to fight with Miramax to get Travolta into the movie. But Quentin stuck to his guns, saying he wanted no one else for the role. Later, Travolta said he was deeply touched by Tarantino's support. I remember the first time I saw that dancing scene with Travolta and Uma Thurman in the theater. It blew my mind. The nerve of Tarantino to cast Travolta and then to put the guy from Saturday Night Fever in a dance scene where he does the twist. It was the directorial equivalent of the wink and kiss emoji, and it worked perfectly. It was Tarantino showing the world, this man is an actor, and this man is a dancer, and this man is a goddamn movie star. And it works so well, you can't take your eyes off of him. When artists or producers who have some juice decide to turn a spotlight on their mentors, it feels like the opposite of the okay boomer attitude that dominates in our culture nowadays. Respecting your elders may be assumed in Eastern societies, but it often feels foreign here in the West. Instead, we tend to see any sign of aging or dying as the enemy that must be ignored. Not to mention the prevailing mentality in show business, target the 18 to 34-year-old demographic and use a giant cane to yank anyone showing a hint of wrinkles off stage. 
But there's magic that can be generated when we stop obsessing over futurists, 30 under 30 lists, and who has, quote, potential. And instead, honor those who've traveled the path before us and let their voices ring out again. When everyone else is trying to go to Mars, it's a good time to explore what's been lost at sea. There are still plenty of treasures down there. Let's bring in producer Jeremiah McVeigh to discuss what you just heard. So as I was listening to that, uh, I was wondering if what you're talking about, your bigger point, which I do agree with in these particular cases especially, but also in other ones, I was wondering if that point maybe pertains to the arts more than other fields. Because I immediately think of like politics where... Even in episodes of this podcast, we've I think we've touched on even maybe tangentially or uh, or whatever you want to call it on instances where the people making decisions are pretty out of touch with the, the things they need to be making decisions about. I think even just last episode it was. Um, so, uh, do you think that there's a chance that these are the exceptions that prove the rule, or do you think that it should be a rule and those kind of bad versions, the Mitch McConnell's of the world or the people on the Supreme Court are the exception. Well, I think if you're bringing back crap, that's one thing. And if you're bringing back wisdom or insight or quality, that's another. Like if you want to go into the political realm, I think of that Dwight Eisenhower speech when at the end of his presidency, when he warned uh, society basically about the military industrial complex and how it was the gravest danger we were facing. And you know, that's something that, you know, keeps popping up every few years is something people refer to. And I think it's necessary and important and was also someone at a specific point in his career where he could say something that no one else could say. And someone also having been a general, you know, being in a position to say it in a way that it, no one else could say it. And I think, you know, when there's a message that's that resonant, that then it's always worth bringing up. And, you know, I think we we see it today with, you know, okay, yeah, we should be helping Ukraine for many reasons, but also let's also factor in Halliburton and Raytheon and, and Lockheed and all the rest of them always seem to be the ones cashing in at the end of the day when we're, you know, buying weapons and fighting wars and, and what is the impact that that's having on the policies that, you know, our, our Congress people are, are enacting. And I think that's something to keep in mind. But yeah, there's plenty of terrible stuff that shouldn't be resurfaced. So I guess it comes down to, you know, taste and, and quality and, and bringing about stuff that actually has merit. As you were just talking there, it, it made me realize maybe I was just not honing in on your point as completely as I thought I had. I was taking the point as we should always listen to and raise up and and highlight our elders, but really maybe the point is more more concisely that we should always listen and then kind of curate <laughs> in some way like what what we accept is like still worthy um attributes to bring into the world going forward. Sure. I mean, I guess I'd I'd probably, if I was going to zoom out to a more abstract sense, it's about, in part, what a great filter time is. 
how you know we get so excited by th- things in the moment and sort of focus on what's modern or hip or trending uh but a lot of that stuff is just going to sort of disappear or look silly or no one's going to care about it in 10 or 20 or 30 years and so things that do actually sustain and stand the test of time and endure and people whose art or output of whatever sort endures that's such a special thing and sort of reveals that there was real power and you know, wisdom or quality there, that that's the stuff that should be resurfaced as opposed to constantly like seeking out whatever's new all the time. This is making me realize when I was like nine or 10 and MC Hammer was like the biggest (laughs) artist in the world, I specifically remember saying to, I think my parents, it was like an epiphany for me at that age. I was like, wow, this is the biggest music in the world. So this is going to be just like the biggest music you guys had when you were kids, which in retrospect was like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And that did not pay off for MC Hammer, sorry to say. <laughs> um, so I do think there's something to, yes, like the the perspective of our elders can help us kind of navigate the world and find what is worthy and, and all. Uh, because, yeah, when you're younger... You just don't have enough experience to realize the, the perspective you should have. I don't even know if you were that far off because maybe MC Hammer doesn't necessarily deserve or need to be resurfaced. But the, if you're talking about, uh, what is it, Can't Touch This or whatever, that's you know Rick James. And I would argue that mm. Rick James is one of the most underrated musicians of the past century, at least a few decades, who does deserve to be resurfaced. And if you want to explore his catalog, there's so much good stuff there that was so influential <laughs> to people like Michael Jackson and and so much R&B that followed him that you were sort of onto something and being like, there, mm. is, there was some genius there that that I think is worth worthy of re-exploring. Um, but maybe maybe it's just not MC Hammer necessarily. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, I think you're giving me more credit than I deserve as a 10-year-old or 9-year-old or whatever I was. But yeah, I mean, that does bring up a point that like maybe the genre in the arts or one of the genres in the arts that is the most, in a way, respectful of what came before is hip-hop. And they get they take a lot of shit sometimes from people for sampling things but really in a lot of instances they're reintroducing something that may have been well known at a time or may have never gotten the credit it deserved to potentially a whole new audience who might get interested in it because they loved how it sounded in this new context so i don't know i just hadn't thought about that is there anything else you want to end on i'm sticking on that concept of time as a filter just because it's something that i is so resonant for me personally of like I'm always fascinated by things that actually stand the test of time in a way of like there's something pure there whether you're talking about like ancient wisdom from things like you know yoga or something like that or you know to art or to even you know the Gettysburg Address or or you know whatever it might be if something is able to decades later still be like referred to and called up and you can admire it and see what's great about it and and think it's worthy of attention how impressive that is versus whatever the modern day thing is that's getting all the bandwidth and i just try to factor that in all the time when i'm you know gauging the quality of something and now for some quickies If you're a low-level state politician and Jon Stewart wants to fly to your state to interview you, you might want to consider saying, uh, no thanks. Here's something you never hear anymore. 
Who am I to judge? The phrase person of interest makes cops sound so coy. Is he a suspect? I can't say. Come on, you could tell me. Let's just say he's interesting. Ooh. You can subscribe to or follow this show just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, or anywhere else that allows you to do that. And when I say that, I mean, like, leave it a good review. I feel like that's obvious, but if, you, if you're just going to leave it a bad review, you, you don't have to. Anyway, it helps others find the show, which I really appreciate. Uh, if you want to reach out to me directly, you can email me at mattruby at hey.com. That's mattruby at hey.com. And if you like this podcast, you should subscribe to the Rube's Letter, where what you just heard first appeared. You can find that at mattrubycomedy.com slash subscribe. And while you're at mattrubycomedy.com, you can also find links to my Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok, where I post clips of my stand-up and other stuff, too. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media. Stereoactive Media.